صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Nasa. Good morning, listeners. Now, Nasa, have you enjoyed the good news about Melbourne being able to go out in the streets and live a little bit? Uh, I am enjoying the the belief that things are getting better soon. I'm very happy that our case numbers are so low. Uh, I'm yep. not yet comfortable enough to go into a restaurant or anything and eat, but uh, I look forward to that happening soon, I reckon. I, I miss the, uh, the homeschooling, to be honest. I enjoyed hanging out with the kids like that, but we've moved on. And what, what have we got on today? We have got another superstar Palestinian woman f- from Melbourne, from Palestine. Noura is joining us, Rob. Good morning, Noura. How are you? I'm good. Good morning to you too, Robert. How are you? I'm very well, very well. So what are we going to chat about today? You know, as we always do, Rob, is ask our special guests about their Nakba story. So Noura, can you take us through your family's Nakba story? Oh, sure. Absolutely, Nasser. As all Palestinians, um, whether inside, outside, in diaspora, refugee camps, in 1948, in Gaza or in the West Bank, we, we've uh, the, the Nakba has been um, such a, a pivotal event for all of us. And it's something that we, even, you know, 70, 70 plus years onwards, we're still experiencing the impact and uh, implication of. For me, my family is what we call an internally displaced family. In Palestine, 1948, today Israel, uh, or I'm originally from Akka. I was born and raised in Akka. Uh, My parents are not from Akka, which is also very typical for uh, internally displaced Palestinians inside Israel. Uh, Because, so what happened is that my my father's family is originally from Safad. And my mother's family is from a village in the Jalil, in the Galilee, that is called Chab, very beautiful, small village. And during the Nakba in 1948, both of their families were displaced and were evicted, forcefully evicted, obviously, from their uh, hometowns, Safad or Shab. And then some of their family members were actually pushed into the borders, into the Lebanese borders or the Syrian border, because Safad is in the upper Galilee that's uh, geographically closer to Syria. My mom's family uh, was pushed into another village and near hers. By the end of it, they end up somehow, <laughs> after um, a tiring journey of trying to escape what you know historians, Palestinians and Israeli historians document as uh, massacres and gang rape, after they tried to escape, all of that occurred during the Nakba, they ended up in Akka. So this is your both of your mother's parents and your father's parents. So both your grandparents, maternal and paternal, both yes. from the Galilee made it so southwest. I mean, that's generally everybody from the north, as you said, went to Lebanon and to Syria. Yes. Most fortuitous for them. 
Yes. So actually, my so some of I think my father's family, my mother's family, her uncle was actually pushed with his grandmother into the West Bank. His, his other sibling was pushed into Lebanon, but then they decided they're going to come back. So they said, "Look, uh, we're not staying in refugee camps. This is ridiculous." Uh, we have homes, um, and we're just coming back. So they they made a um, they made that decision to a very risky decision to come back, um, and yeah, they they're it's, they're back in Akka now. So your, both of your grandparents settle in Akka. Your dad and mum are born in Akka. Yes, that's right. They get married there. You get born there. You're one of three fantastic beautiful, bright, smart women. I mean, you are amazing intellects, each and every one of you. Actually, we should do a, a, an order of sister show, get all three of you to connect. Oh, absolutely. They, yeah. they would love that, Nasser. We'll book it into the next few weeks. You should talk to my grandmother. She has the most interesting stories of, of all time. So, <laughs> yeah. That will definitely put that one on, on, the, uh, on the drawing board. Nora, Akka, now I've been a few times, you grew up there. Akka is a little bit unique because, you know, one of the things that the Israelis tell us in the media, you know, is that the, the Arabs want to drive them into the seas and, you know, we're bloodthirsty savages. Um, but the reality is Akka is nothing like that, is it? No, not at all. No, not at all. And in reality, also, in, according to history, the ones who pushed the other into the sea were the Zionist militias. So they're the ones who loaded people on boats. Um, and pushed them into, um, the, you know, in Akka and Haifa and Yaffa, and they pushed Palestinians into the ocean, into the sea. So that's that's a myth. Um, but also, when we talk about Akka, Akka is um, what what they call a mixed city. So by mixed, they mean that both Palestinians and Israeli Jewish Israelis live in there. As mixed as it is, it's I would say it's pretty segregated because Palestinians and Israelis in Akka don't go to the same schools. They don't hang out. They don't um, hang out in the same places. They don't even live in the same places um, for the most most part of it. I would say the system is, is created in a way so that the segregation is uh, strong and it's perpetuated um, so that people don't get to mix and realize, you know, that you know what, you're not so bad after all. I mean, I, I had um, Jewish neighbors. I always had Jewish neighbors growing up. And we were always, um, you know, like the, the niceties of like, good morning, good night, how are you doing? You know, so that was that was a regular part of my life. But you could see that there's a, a ceiling that you would hit that ceiling when you start talking about, you know, the army when when they graduate and they turn 18, they are forced because they have mandatory conscript. Exactly. So because they have mandatory army and they have to go, that's where things get very awkward. Um, I, just, I just got to just check. The Jews and the Palestinians can all go to the same areas, though. So there's no restrictions at all. But there's no we're... restrictions. No, but but yeah. because because you don't you like you're very segregated in the sense that you don't have friends like you have very little friends from the other side. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you and so there's mental friendship. barriers basically yeah exactly and it's not deep like the friendship it's not real because you know you're not if you want to be nice you don't talk about politics but yet politics is there all the time so it becomes the one thing like, that needs to be discussed exactly so it becomes yeah. like this huge elephant in the room that like you know i can't pretend i'm not palestinian and i can't pretend that you're not going to the army you can pretend that you are not victimizing palestinians on a checkpoint and why are we doing this you know like it's it's very weird it hits a ceiling 
and then from there it just doesn't trickle. The image you paint there is is quite separate. I mean, like one of the benefits of being a tourist, of course, is that you can deal with stuff superficially. You don't have to be immersed in it. In fact, as you said, that you could theoretically, if you went to a school that was co-religious or co-national, the fact is at the graduation point, because you wouldn't go into the army, but your Jewish classmate would, that would be arguably the end of the friendship because they're going from a point of, you know, a fraternity because you're in class together to a point of oppression. Tomorrow, the same classmate could ask you for your ID and determine whether or not you could cross a crossing point or not. Absolutely. And I would say it goes deeper than, than, than just that point, because like if you go, you know, that we go to different schools and we have different curriculum that I learn uh, and they learn something different when it comes to, let's say, civics or history, right? So um, the way, even the way, for, for instance, there's been a lot of research about how Palestinians are described and portrayed in, in Israeli curriculum. And it's, it's just horrible, like, you know, so, so it's not just that physically they're separated, but they're also uh, being, you know, indoctrinated by different yeah. uh, curriculums. I, I interviewed Nurit Pellet Elahan, who uh, did a lot of the studies about how Palestinians were portrayed in the books. And it's so blatant, yet you can't see it. It's just one of those things that, that make the Palestinians look very, very simple. But on the part of the, on the maps as well, any Palestinian areas, they don't, it's not written, it's left blank. Mm. And so you can sort of understand how the Israelis are raised and have an understanding that's incorrect about the Palestinians. And obviously it's going to continue on through life until something drastic changes. Uh, There's twofold. There's the part where they erase the Palestinian existence, but there's also the part where it demonizes the Palestinians as well. So the Palestinian, for example, for example, is, is uh, portrayed as, you know, they're, they're a thief. Um, uh, they have big simple. eyes, they look scary. Yeah. So Simple farmers yeah. and all so, of those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. So it like, it fluctuates between a complete erasure and demonization. So I mean, but that's the reality of a, a settler colonialist education system. The, the same is true here in Australia. I mean, what our children are taught in classrooms with regards to our Indigenous brothers and sisters' history, connection to the land, you know, the fact that they cultivated land, you know. It's only recently that the the whole myth of them being nomadic without having ever um, harvested crops or dammed water, this is, this is the reality. You create the erasure by delegitimizing their presence, and that's the fact what Israel's done and tried to do with the Palestinians, what the Americans... Absolutely. Know, Absolutely, America, yes. South America. Yes, Nasser, that's right. And I think that's how, you know, generally speaking, that's how settler colonialism operates. It operates in ways which um, it's similar across uh, history. So if we look, if we were to examine the US or Australia or, you know, um, today's um, Israel, Palestine. So you would see that these practices are very similar in the sense that the, the bedrock of settler colonialism is removal of the indigenous population now, whether through eradication and genocide or whether through um, forced eviction and transfer and, and displacement. So yeah, I agree. And on top of that, there's also the ongoing erasure, right? There's the, the, the Terra Nilius. And in Palestine, it was um, described as empty land for people with- um, A land without people for a people without- Exactly, exactly. So you'd see even the, the discourse and, the underlying assumption of settler colonialism is, is very similar. 
is that, that this land is empty because it doesn't have people that look like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're not, therefore, they're not people, they're flora and fauna. So. Yeah. And we've got that next layer, which is happening today, you know, the, the cultural appropriation. So beyond the erasure and disconnection of our indigeneity, now they're taking our food, our clothes, our dance, our songs, our music, our folklore, and turning it into their own. You know, you can get yeah. Israeli falafel. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a funny notion. But yes, so I, I think that connects back to that point of removal of indigenous, indigenous population. So they like the land. They, you know, what, what, what's not to like in the land, right? They like mm. the culture. Of course you like falafel. Who doesn't like falafel, right? Hummus mm. is delicious. Knafish del- is delicious. Of course you're going to like those things. But you want, you want, you know, in the sense that settler colonialism claims that not, not only the space, but also the culture. And then it becomes something that they appropriate as well, such exactly just like the land. Now, we talk, we talk about Israel being an apartheid country, and we've spoken about the reasons why it's apartheid, two sets of rules for different people, and those rules are applied not on the Jim Crow South or the South African model of colour of the skin, because as we know, most Israeli Jews are in fact Arab. They look like me, not like Benjamin and Yahoo. You've got to challenge yourself, uh, Nora, because though you have a Israeli passport and citizenship and can vote, your husband is not Israeli. So that creates some challenges for you, did create some challenges for you, but then also for your children. Now, if you had just simply celebrated God on Saturday, all this would have been so much easier for you. Yes. Well, I I think it's beyond just celebrating God on Saturday. I think it's because some of some of those people who do celebrate God on Saturday, who reject Zionism, they also face some issues. I mean, not that it's not the same uh, in terms of, you know, how the severity of the issues that they face. It's it's never the same as the Palestinian, but they still um, are faced with challenges as well. I I meant that from the point of view, and I appreciate that, you know, we've had so many fantastic anti-Zionist Jews as friends on the show and, you know, as dear kindred spirits. Right. What I mean specifically is the right of any Jew to claim citizenship and move to Israel and benefit from the uh, advantage immigration policies that Israel offers. Which, you know, sponsorship. Jews uh, doing yeah. earlier. But yes, that's correct. you, yeah. uh, with a non-Jewish husband, mm-hmm. even though you carry citizenship, you can't help him settle there. Yes. And and your children, mm. you can't pass that on to them either. Yeah, so satellite colonialism also creates structures so that it maintains its own existence. But also it's not just its own existence. It's existence as an entity that provides or gives more privileges to the settler group right and this is this is one way of doing that like in, in Palestine and Israel there's the right the, the right of return and that law is one of the uh, basic laws in Israel because Israel doesn't have a constitution as you know and doesn't have borders no one knows where the borders are but um, so they work with base basic laws and and these basic laws some of which are the right of return the uh, laws of land, and the citizenship law. So they definitely, they definitely, without a doubt, they discriminate against the indigenous population, the Palestinians in Palestine, in Israel, including the ones who have Israeli citizenship. So for instance, as you mentioned, Nasser, I, there are certain things that I'm not, I, I, by law, according to the law, I'm not eligible for, even though 
I'm an Israeli citizen. So uh, the, the right um, specifically targets Palestinians to prevent them from bringing other Palestinians into the country through marriage. Um, and by country, I mean like even P Palestinians from the West Bank are, are not allowed to be reunited re uh, with their uh, families um, in Akka, for instance. I mean, they basically want you to leave permanently. And that's the, oh, yeah. the whole yeah. reason it's set up like that. Yeah. Well, that matrix of control extends to Jerusalemites and their IDs and, you know, having to prove that Jerusalem is the centre of their life. There's many, many sad stories of Gazans who married West Bankers and they went back and visited their family and now the husband is trapped in the West Bank and the mother and the kids had to go back to Gaza. Ultimately, what it is, that machination of and that structure to ensure a, a continuation of the Nakba, the slow ethnic cleanse, the grind, the house demolitions, etc. Yes, that is right. And and the supremacy of the settler group, you know, so, yeah. yeah. What about the challenges that Palestinians 48ers face within 48? Economic mobility, housing? Mm, yes. So without a doubt, so even land issues like Palestinians in, in, inside Israel also face issues with the lands, right? So we don't hear much about that because in the sense that, in, you know, in the West Bank and Gaza, it's much worse, especially specifically in the West Bank at this stage. But yeah, there's been land confiscation in, in areas such in, in, the, in the Jalil. There's been also obviously issues with housing, refusal to give, to allow Palestinians to rebuild or build their houses. If, for, for instance, in Akka, if you live in the old city of Akka and uh, your house is uh, leaking, right? You can't fix it on your, on your own. Like you need a permit to fix your house because that's considered that you are kind of rebuilding. Improvement. Yes. All these restrictions that target basically the expansion. And, and that's what they call us. They call us the demographic threat, you know. Mm, yeah. So for them, you know, for instance, my two little boys, so one-year-old and three-year-old, are, are considered a demographic threat. Like they're, to them, to, from a Zionist point of view, they're legitimate targets. And just only because they exist, like they don't have to do anything. They don't have to engage in activism, they don't have to engage in resistance, not resistance, culture, whatever. They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is identify as Palestinians. And that, that is it. That's, that makes them legitimate target. And, and to be, you know, it's, it's quite scary from a mother point of view. It's horrific. It's horrific. I mean, and it's a reality, though. I mean, a lot of people think what you know, Israel does is so absurd that they don't believe it. And these are the, the little things. I mean, I'll just going back to what you said before. That in some areas people can't repair their own house. I mean, that's just a level of control that yeah. is, you know, preposterous. And that's one aspect of, of uh, the restrictions that are imposed on Palestinians in Israel. You know, they, we're only 20% of the population, and that's close to 2 million, but we are almost 50% of people under poverty line. Now, that's also something that is, uh, you know, typical and characteristic of settler colonialism. I think we have similar statistics here in Australia with um, far less. For, for instance, um, 3% of the population here in Australia are um, Indigenous and First Nation people. However, they're overrepresented in, in the prison population. Like youth incarceration numbers are just insane. We're talking about 55%. I think at one point um, in the Northern Territory, 100% of youth detention were Aboriginal yeah. uh, earlier this year. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. The mortality rate, the infant mortality rate, the incidences of type 2 diabetes, you know, preventable diseases, all of those things are way off the charts if you're an Indigenous 
Aboriginal in Australia or Indigenous Palestinians in Israel. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. GDP, all the numbers and the, the comparisons, we did a show on it, in fact, a couple of years ago, the numbers are eerily close. You, know, you, can't, you cannot believe just how close yeah. they are, you know, to second and third decimal point. Yeah, yeah, not, not surprising, yeah. Sad, sad, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pivot away from Palestine, you know, 48, the land, and talk mm-hmm. about what's happening now geopolitically. You know, we've had the Donald Trump saying, you know, Lazy Joe couldn't pull this off. You know, I've now got three Arab countries to normalise. I mean, this is a, a new word, you know. Uh, mm. I mean, we've been using it in the vernacular with respect to Palestine, Israel. But, you know, countries don't normalise with each other. You know, you have mutual recognition and swapping of ambassadors. But now we've got countries that are Arab countries that are amongst the most repressive and oppressive of regimes uh, with respect to how they treat their citizens to the point where the UAE and the day before they announced they were normalising with Israel sent out a WhatsApp message warning everyone that opposing official policy was not permitted, you know, Mm. uh, and and the same went out in Bahrain. The reality of Sudan is Mm. that Sudan's military is normalising with Israel. The civilian government is in opposition to the idea and the people of Sudan, and most recent surveys were done only in June this year, in excess of 90% of the Arabs in the Arab world are against normalising. So you want to talk to the geopolitics of where it is now, why, et cetera? You mentioned a, a very good point, Nasser, which is um, that we need to make that distinction when we talk about normalization. Because and you know what, even the term, when they use normal, because when do you normalize something? It means that it's not normal, right? <laughs> so you're making an effort to make something normal that indicates <laughs> that it's not normal. So yep. even that terminology that is used, they're kind of like, they're, they're, they know it's not normal. When we talk about the normalization and those um, deals, recent deals in, uh, in, in that context, I think it's important to make that distinction because when we talk about regimes, as you mentioned, Nasser, these are regimes that are uh, realizing that they're very weak and that they're realizing that, you know, they're struggling domestically and they're struggling regionally. Um, and they are looking for some kind of legitimacy, and, and that's where uh, the U.S. Uh, Trump administration comes in. The people in the Arab world, and the people not just I, I not only in the Arab world, I think people in general, you know, all around the world, are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and to the Palestinian struggle because this is basic uh, global values, right? Uh, the, the Palestinian cause is not pretending to be anything that it's, it's not. human it's just rights, about isn't it? Human rights. It's about Exactly. It's about justice and it's about global values. And that is, there's a consensus, I think, on, on, these, on these values all around the world, especially in the Arab world now because of the, you know, the Arab identity, but also because of the geographical proximity and the shared history that we have uh, as, as an Arab nation. So, yes, pe- people in, in the Arab world, in those areas where or in the, those countries where there's been uh, some space for them to protest. So the Bahrainis, they've been protesting. We know also of protests and dissent in, in Sudan. So it's important to keep in mind that Sudan is in, is, is in, transi- in a transitional phase. 
right? So then only last year there's, there was a revolution and it's still going through um, a very instable phase where this current government that it's a transitional government is supposed to hand over to the civilian government. As you mentioned, this is a, the, the current military government. Mm. Um, but having said that, even within that government, within the current government that is now normalizing, there has been dissent as well. And there's been um, opposition on the uh, uh, normalization deal. So yes, it's important not to kind of lump everything and everyone uh, under the same category. Interestingly, Israel has a Sudanese refugee problem, inverted commas, yeah? As we know, a few, I think up to about 10,000, is that right? Not a- yeah, something like this. Yeah, about 10,000 Sudanese are refugees in Israel, and Israel built a, a great big beautiful wall, Trump-style wall, to <laughs> stop them, to keep them out. People forget the language used by, like, Miri Regev, you know, she, she called the Sudanese a cancer on our body, and then later apologised. She did apologise. <laughs> um, but she apologised to cancer victims for comparing them to Africans. She didn't, she didn't apologize to the Africans for calling Just for our listeners, this actually happened. You can actually look it up. It actually she, happened. She's the current minister for transport in Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Benjamin Netanyahu said the same sort of stuff. That yeah. now all of a sudden, Trump is, you know, on the phone. He had Netanyahu on a speakerphone going, BB, lazy Joe couldn't have done this for you. I've managed to do it for you. You know, trying to turn what he termed a shithole country you know, he's taken off the terrorist list. He took $400 million in cash to uh, compensate some victims, uh, American victims of terror. And now suddenly we're, we're all singing Kumbaya around the campfire. I mean, who wants to be friends with these countries? Yeah. Look, What's also, yeah, about you? yeah, look, you know, Danny Danone also had, um, you know, Danny Danone is supposed to be the next uh, ambassador here in Australia. And he also had a statement about a very racist, racist statement about Sudanese uh, refugees and how he, you know, wants them all to go back to Sudan and stuff like that. So, uh, but I think it also goes deeper. It, like racism in Israel trickles down, not just. So it's 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 also very prevalent in a sense that there's been. I don't know if you guys know. You probably do, but there's been um, cases where people from African um, countries went and they donated blood, but. Um, the hospital just threw the blood away because they didn't want it's to use it. infected in their eyes. Yeah. And, and, and there's been also, um, uh, and that's been also all over the news, that they were giving them um, child, like birth control. Without them knowing, yeah. Consent. Yeah. But they weren't just doing that to the Sudanese. They were doing that to the Ethiopians. Ethiopians, Ethiopians yeah, yeah, Ethiopians, yeah. Because, you know, the wrong color Jew. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and we're talking about Jew, Jewish people as well. So, but going back to Trump, and I think that's, um, that's important to, to, like, to keep in mind. So Trump, obviously, uh, is not doing great domestically. Uh, um, and he's obviously struggling, same as Netanyahu. They're both leaders who are just are desperate to get some kind of a win. And I think this Sudan thing, as we got closer, as we get closer to the elections in the US, and as Trump gets more and more desperate, he's just using all of his cards. So, so that, that you know, therefore the Sudan statement. So I think that's that's what it is really. These these normalization deals that uh, have been signed recently, whether with um, you know regimes in, in the Middle East, Arab regimes like the Bahrain and the uh, UAE, and now Sudan, they are really a collaboration between just uh, what do you call them? Like I don't know, tyrants. They're tyrants. Oh, 
Yeah. I mean, this is why yeah, South Africa's last friend was Israel. You know, when, right. when, when you're an apartheid nation oppressing 50% of the people you control, you need to make friends with other countries because that's what the UAE does, that's what Bahrain does, and that's what their Sudanese people do. And I, I hope it's not going to be the case, but I fear that we'll be having this conversation about Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia, yeah. That's, that won't be surprising. Look, I mean, to be honest, none of this is a surprise from a Palestinian point of view, right? We knew that these Gulf countries all had already established some kind of contact, contact with Israel, right? Yep. So we already know that these, these uh, regimes have some kind of collaboration with Israel and they have had visits and they've had some trade and uh, diplomatic exchange. So we, we knew that. And we also knew that their policies towards Palestinian is not very friendly or sympathetic. So uh, again, that's, that didn't really come as a surprise. However, it's still shocking and still disappointing from a Palestinian point of view, even, even though it wasn't a surprise. Yeah, so these regimes are not, my point is that it's not, it's not new. It's something that's been going on for decades, uh, but now it's just been uh, pushed in the open. It's out in the open. Well, that, that's about it. Thank you so very much, Nora, for joining us today. That was fantastic. No worries. Thank you, Nasser, and thank you, Robert. And that was Nora. What a fantastic Palestinian woman. Now, remember last week we had Rafif and Phil on. There's still time for you to order, pre-order your CD and support that fabulous work. Make sure you go to Posible, P-O-Z-I-B-L-E, and look up Rafif Ziadeh. If you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's podcast, go back into 3cr.org.au, have a look at the podcasts there and download that episode. Share this one, tell your friends, make sure you listen next week. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.